in Minneapolis. I went to Bethlehem College and Seminary. I was in Bible College at the time, and we had a class where we had to go to four different uh, tours of services that were either part of another religion uh, or a, a fringe group in evangelicalism. I wish I could tell you more. I went to one of them at a, a beautiful building, and it was called the Basilica of St. Mary in Minneapolis. It, it was a Roman Catholic church, but Nonetheless, it was amazingly beautiful. I don't know how tall the ceilings were, but they had a, a giant, uh, giant pillars over the monstrance of like 30-foot stone pillars and an arch and then a six-foot, and she looked tiny, six-foot Mary up there. And, and the ceiling was even <laughs> amazingly like 30 feet above that. <clears throat> beautiful. And <clears throat> though... It was filled with idols and worship of idols. We won't get into that. Uh, we, it was so beautiful and breathtaking that they gave tours all day, it seemed. And so before we went to a, a mass, there was a, a pointing out of the tour guide. The tour guide would point out something, tell us to look at it, and then they would explain the history and the significance of such and so forth. And they would direct your attention to here and there. And Stephen, throughout our time in Acts chapter 7, has been a sort of tour guide. Points out something in redemptive history and brings it to light what it means and what, how things pointed forward to Christ and also to Israel's sin. He was a, a great tour guide surveying something much greater than any building of man, namely God's way of redemption in Christ Jesus. And so as he is acting as our tour guide, we will continue to look beginning with verse 38 and spend the first half of the sermon here. Because as we saw last week, Moses was pointed to as a, a redeemer, a sort of figure who was looking forward and anticipating the redemption and the redeemer, Christ Jesus. So in verse 38, Stephen gives us first a description of of Moses and his function. Let's read it as he points out a few things in the, as we point out a few things in this text. It says, this, that is this Moses, this is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. We are directed in our attention after hearing the statement, prophet like me, and then Stephen shows, well, this is what the prophet does. He receives living oracles from God and gives them to the people. And before we get into my substantive points. I want to point out something that that you may not see in the translation itself, but uh, Stephen literally says, this is the one who was in the church in the wilderness, the church in the wilderness. Now, I don't want to make too big of a point and too little of a point on this particular aspect, but many in our church 
culture today have been taught to radically separate Old and New Testament, Israel and the church. And yet this is not the pattern that we see in Scripture, especially as those going to school learning how to translate uh, ecclesia is the word for church. Most of us know that word. Uh, and uh, Stephen quotes from the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We, we could call it the early church's Bible, the, what they would have had from Genesis to Malachi. And uh, ecclesia appears about a hundred times in the Old Testament. It's, it's a concept that existed from the very beginning. Uh, it's usually translated congregation or assembly, uh, though in our day and age, there is a, a move to not translate that consistently. To do it one way in the Old Testament, to do it one way in the New Testament, it would be better to be consistent there. Now, <clears throat> we should obviously distinguish between the Old Testament congregation and the New Testament congregation. Well, firstly, because they have two different covenants. There is an Old Covenant and a new covenant. They are under different um, covenants, and that means they're really two different makeups of the congregation, who they would be. Christ, who has now come, has established the church, the congregation in the Lord on the new covenant, which has surpassed the old. And really, it has fulfilled the old. The old was in preparation for the new. But this by no means means that God did not have a people from the very beginning. Uh, he had a congregation. He had a people whom he gave his word and whom he saved. Yet the distinction would be between uh, Israel, as was seen in the nation, and a smaller subset of Israel. Not all Israel is Israel, Paul says. There is a, a church within a church. There is those who by faith trust in the promises of God and are saved in the Old Testament. Moses himself was saved and participated in the grace of Christ in the assembly of the Old Testament in the wilderness. He was one of the faithful in the church, in the wilderness, though by and large they were not. We must recognize something that <clears throat> maybe is missing in a lot of Baptist circles. That is, all the Old Testament saints were saved in the same way and by the same person as you and I. All men throughout all times are saved alone by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is saved by any other means or method. So when we see assembly of the Lord or congregation of the Lord in the Old Testament, think church. We must see that even though there is by and large an unbelieving Israel, there existed, Paul tells us in Romans, in a remnant Elected by grace, true Israel, those who had circumcised hearts, not just the external observance, who observed the old sacrificial rites, 
received the grace of Christ. Only as they looked further on to the prophet to come, to the great and final sacrifice that is in Jesus. Now hold that for a minute. A pause, and I'll bring this around because we need to notice how Stephen brings this together in verse 38. And it's very striking. Verse 38, uh, Christ's living words. We're going to talk about his words. Now, we see that he points out in verse 38 that in the congregation in the wilderness, there was the angel who spoke with him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. Now, this angel, I have argued already, is the pre-incarnate Jesus. I think I demonstrated that very clearly. If you didn't hear that sermon, you can go back or you can talk to me after or whatever. Uh, This is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. He is the angel whom is being spoken of here. So before Christ uh, took on humanity, became the God-man, he always existed as the Son of God. And he appeared in various different forms to our fathers even to those in the wilderness and to Moses. Jesus appears after his incarnation on the Mount of Transfiguration, talking with Moses again. It's something that they like to do on mountains, uh, as we will see. Now, he points out that the angels spoke both with them and their fathers. Now, Moses, we're not to infer that the angel um, was continually speaking to them. And there is a, a both two things that are called out, the, the means of delivery, that is Moses received living oracles and gave it to the people. Uh, but one of the things that Stephen strongly emphasizes is that this angel, that is Christ Jesus, be- before he came um, in the form of the God-man, took on human form as well as his divine nature, Um, he is the one speaking. The emphasis is to say, not the delivery, how it got to the people, but the fact that clear revelation from Jesus himself is coming to the people. And what is this revelation? Well, it's called living oracles, or literally living words. And it was at Mount Sinai that these words are given. And what was given on Sinai? Well, you all know, it was the law. The law of God. It is, in other words, Jesus himself delivers the law to Moses. Now, how common is it for Christians to disconnect Jesus from the Old Testament, let alone the giving of the law of Moses So common, in fact, that 38 is probably needing a moment just to sink in a little bit. Jesus himself is the giver of the old covenant law. And not only that, Stephen says that these are living words for them. Although the law condemns us as sinners, nonetheless, in it has the promise of gospel Grace, that is, people got saved by the law, not by keeping it. 
but by looking forward to the mediator who would fulfill these things. We can ask, how does the law do that? And we need to be very clear and specific, uh, lest we say something uh, or hear something that I, I don't intend to say. Stephen comprehends not only uh, your mind runs to what was given on Sinai, namely the, the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments. Yes, this is true. But Stephen comprehends, I think, by calling it living oracles in most translators um, or most interpreters acknowledge that this encompasses the whole of the law. That's how it becomes living words for us, the whole system uh, in itself. The law itself shows forth in a shadowy figure, a, a shadowy form, a type of the forgiveness of sins, which only comes to fulfillment in Jesus. It, it both says you are condemned because you can't keep it. But there is a restorative promise in those sacrifices that points forward and causes the people to trust that in God's hands is their full forgiveness. <clears throat> the Westminster and uh, our, my, and hopefully someday our confession, the Second London Baptist, agree, 8.6 reads this way. The price of redemption was not actually paid... <clears throat> was not actually paid by Christ till after his incarnation, that is, on the cross. Yet, the virtue, efficacy, and the benefit of it, that is the cross, was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15, and the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, Revelation. In other words, the law itself contains the promise of the gospel in what we call typological form. <laughs> um, that is... <clears throat> What becomes fully clear in Jesus Christ that he is the substance. He is the reality of Sabbath rest. He is the reality, the substance of forgiveness of sins. He is the, uh, the fulfillment, the reality of the righteousness of one who keeps the law. He kept the whole law. He's born under it. He kept it fully. And therefore, by his death, gives us what we cannot have in and of ourselves. That is a righteousness by law. That is a thing that Christ Jesus alone has. <clears throat> I'm, I'm reading a, a, a great book that I've sort of restarted because I got off track reading other books. I don't know if you do that. You start reading and you're like, oh, I got to read this. And need of the moment. I just need to learn how to say, uh, plow through uh, but this is a 700-page tome, and it is uh, dense and wonderful. <clears throat> but this that I read this week came uh, in a perfect focus concerning what we need to hear today. <clears throat> I, I just read from the confession, 
and hopefully it ties things together in terms of, of the law. So let me read this first statement and then explain what it means and then the rest, rest of it I'm going to just quote by reading. The Reformed understanding of the Pauline critique of the law has reference only to its soteriological function is a surely correct one. <clears throat> so that is the Reformed tradition and all of Christian history, really, but what comes to pass in our best and most faithful confessions, that is, they recognize that Paul's uh, shows a problem in the law. That is, it condemns us, and we, by keeping it, will never be saved. That is, uh, we, we cannot justify ourselves through keeping the law. That is soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. It can't save you by keeping it. That's correct. Now he goes to expand on the law itself because this is where our problem lies and this is what Stephen is saying. The moral law and its various sanctions and applications, that is case law, are still operative and ceremonial or restorative shadows are fully operative in Christ's redemptive fulfillment of them. Christians must then reject legalism, meaning salvation by works, and antinomianism, rejection of the law. Okay, we, we tend in our day and age call... Uh, we, we mess up this category. We think that everything is legalism uh, when it comes to law keeping. That is not true. The reform never saw it that way, though it's been very um, heavily taught in pulpits all over. There is there's a great misunderstanding. None of us are saved by the law, legalism, but we are saved for the law, to keep it. Um, and to reject the law as pertinent for the Christian life is to become lawless. <laughs> but you should remember that Jesus came to destroy the lawless one. Lawlessness is sin. We are saved for good works that God prepared beforehand that we might walk in them. So he says we are saved for an ethic of gratitude for our spiritual liberation secured at the cross. We now live a life of obedience to God's law by the Spirit in gratitude for God's measureless grace. For his perfect law has become our desire and delight. Indeed, St. John writes, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So... <clears throat> what we must understand is that Stephen wants to point out the, the, the connection that is between Christ and the law. Christ and the law. Because he's standing before people who are charging him with saying, you want to break 
the customs of Moses. You say that Jesus is going to overturn the customs that have been handed down to us by Moses himself. And Stephen's point, if I'm going to put it in this way, wants to say that whether you reject the law or whether you reject the apostle, uh, law of Moses or the apostle's gospel, which is really simply just preaching the fulfillment of those realities in the law, you reject Christ's word, which gives life. You're rejecting Christ's word. When you, when you hold to Moses, as opposed to Jesus, you reject them both. For Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you believe me, for he wrote of me. You see, Stephen puts the nail on the head, hits the nail on the head. God has always had one people and one plan of salvation, and that does not change. The administration changes because the covenant changes, but the plan from the beginning has been the, the seed who crushes the head of the serpent, which in the fullness of the times is Christ Jesus. That is the gospel. It was preached to Adam and all successive generations. He illuminates the real problem. That is, true Israel is not constituted by anything else but by faith. Faith in God. Faith in his promises. Faith in his salvation. They, who are standing there in front of Stephen, may have made an external display. That is, the males might have externally had the sign of the covenant that is circumcision in the flesh, but he charges them at the end. Verse 51, you are stiff-necked, you are uncircumcised in hearts. Though they may have uh, the outward show inwardly, it is not a reality that has penetrated their heart. The fundamental requirement of the law is that their hearts would be circumcised and therefore they would be part of the covenant of Grace, as we call it. Just because they're ethnically Jewish and in the flesh towards people outside, they may keep the letter of the law. They lacked what really makes one the people of God, demonstrated in Abraham. That is, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's the only way that anybody's ever been saved. And they had a different means, a different thought about securing salvation in their own way. <clears throat> and so what Stephen then goes on to do for really the rest of the sermon, but we'll just focus on 39 through 41. That is, Stephen now begins to prove this by pointing out their idolatry. I'm going to read this text first, and then I want to go back to Exodus because there's some timeline stuff uh, so as to help Stephen's statements land on us as, as hard as they would have landed on the original hearers. Verse 39, he says, Our fathers refused to obey him, that is Moses, but they thrust him aside and in their hearts turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. 
As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Before the days which Stephen speaks, which is Exodus chapter 32, I encourage you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to do some summary work. If you have a pencil, I very highly encourage you to write in your Bible. If you don't write in your Bible, maybe, maybe, maybe you should buy another one that you feel comfortable writing in. Write in your Bible. It's very, very helpful. And maybe I'll do a class on that someday. But verse, we all know chapter 20 because this is where the Ten Commandments come and they are recited here before the people by the Lord himself. And the people see a wonderful sight. They see in verse 18 of chapter 20 that there is thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain was smoking and the people were afraid were afraid and they trembled even as they stood far off and they're like hey Moses we don't want to hear this anymore this is terrifying please you talk to God and then you tell tell us what he has to say and Moses uh, agreed with that and in verse 21 we see after that sight the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Okay, so think of this. The the people are standing far back, and now the prophet is about to go up and receive the words of God. They already had heard the voice of the Lord himself, and here he goes into the presence of God to do, do his work as a prophet. And from this point, through verse, or through chapter 21, 22, and 23, we have an ex explanation and expansion on the commandments that were given okay so that's those three chapters summarized all law and then in chapter 24 verse 1 you should mark this this is a new section then he said to moses come up to the lord you and aaron nadab and abihu and the 70 elders of the of Israel and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to Yahweh, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. And there's a successive stages like that of the temple. We don't have time for this today, but in this section, this is the sort of second occurrence of Moses going up and receiving more of the law. But before he does it, we have this Um, immensely important section that you may not know and you need to know in order to really comprehend how powerfully Stephen is refuting the Jews at this time and preaching Christ even from Moses. Moses, this in in verse, let me just summarize, verse 3 through 8, what we see is there are sacrifices that are given, Moses writes down the whole law. He speaks the law to the people. Um, and, and then he ends up throwing the, the, after reading the book, he throws the blood from the sacrifices onto them. I don't know 
how you would feel if you're in church and there is a sacrifice performed here and then you had blood thrown onto you. But it's a significant event because then he says, uh, words which sound very similar to the Lord's Supper. Behold, the blood of the covenant that Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. A significant event in the life of Israel. But what we need to see is in verse 9 through 11, it says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu. Oh, excuse me. One more thing is in verse 7, in the hearing of the people, here's what they say. All that Yahweh has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And that's when the blood is sprinkled on them. Then, verse 9, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. That is, they saw Jesus. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. You remember John chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time, but the only God, that is the only Son from the Father, He has made Him known. That is, Jesus has been the one standing forth in the pages of Israel itself, in the pages of Old Testament history. Jesus Christ is the one that they saw before He came in the flesh. And now, having that as the background, they have seen God a couple different times. Super significant events. We will obey. And now in verse 39 and following, right after, okay? So they had seen God in a significant way and heard his very voice. Something which none of us have had. (laughs) Moses then goes up and he goes up into the smoke and the cloud and it is burning on the mountain for 40 days. And yet right after these people of Israel, when it looks like it could be very promising, man, look at what they've seen. Look at what they've heard. The glory of the Lord is burning brightly, even in their presence now. Maybe it's promising for Israel, but, but no, it's not. This is, this is the point. After seeing the pre-incarnate glory of Christ, they thrust aside Moses immediately. And they go after Egyptian gods and make an idol into the symbol of a calf. After this section, you get all the way to 32. That's the next section where we hear what the people have done. It's all law. And in, verse, in chapter 32, 1, they turn aside and say what Stephen quoted. And... <clears throat> They just heard. I, can you imagine this? It's, it's baffling. The first and second commandment from the Lord God himself. And they turn aside immediately to a worthless, mute, and dead idol. How could this be? The heart of man. Let's focus on idolatry for a little bit. And, and bring this to us and... Hear the word of Christ. The heart of man is totally depraved and corrupt in every part. It's black as coal. 
It's as sour as sun-baked milk. It is as twisted as Smeagol. It's as dead as Lazarus. Let us remember that in our sin, we once lived under this same power still, uh, which attempts to uh, assail us via idolatry. That was the great sin that they were involved in. The bright glory of God still burned on the mountain. The the words of the prophet, uh, as it were, rung in their ears still, and yet they turned to their own imagination. They, they turned to a fantasy of their own creation. I, ha, I, I just point out, you can look at the sexual revolution going on today, and you can think about the way that we try to create fiction and believe it and worship it. Though I don't want to go there. I want us to think about us. Idolatry is in our, our midst in this sense. It is the ongoing struggle about what it looks like to worship God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What they did is they shoved out the living oracles of the one true God and exchanged it for the, to put it in a catchy phrase, the perverse pontification of the imagination of men. They turned aside to frilly words and statements that made them feel good. The Bible, faithfully interpreted and dogmatically held to in our day, in many places, even places that we would consider conservative Christian, is often seen as rigid and too hard, unloving and and not so winsome. It'll make you an unpopular person an unpopular person to say, I know what God says and insist on it. We have a major problem in our church culture today, which exists here too, which we always have to be at battle of. We have to know how the culture, even cultural Christianity has been perverted or it has gone astray or is ten- or we're tempted to give way to things that would cause us to idolize um, maybe our own understanding or our own uh, comfort or whatever. There is in our churches, by and large, a de-emphasis on knowledge. De-emphasis on knowledge. Pastors are praised to our gospel-centered and yet preach only a handful of messages for 30 years. I, I had a, a couple places that I stopped into that were very wonderful and great. And then I, I have also been um, traveled to places that, you know, the pastor has three messages from all of Scripture. And that's, that's it. Um, and this is different than Paul's approach, who will say later in Acts In a few years, instead of a few messages in 30 years, he says in a few years to the Ephesian elders, I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. We would say Genesis to Revelation, the sacrificial system in the law of the Old Testament to 
Christ and his cross. All in all must be communicated. Shepherds who teach very little about God's word don't believe and don't understand that Jesus taught us the great commandment, which is just a restatement of the law. The first greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love your heart, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, he adds this by the way, mind and strength. Mind and strength. The Christian life is an education in God. That's if it's done rightly. And sadly, many Christians feel free to live their life willingly ignorant about who God is and don't realize that their experience of him in their life directly corresponds, rises and falls with the level of faithful pursuit of the knowledge of God. You can't love somebody you don't know. I've had somebody recently tell me about about this this church that they've never heard so much preaching on the trinity or discussion of it i didn't really think about it that much it's never talked about <laughs> central tenet of what we believe can you imagine that will not be the case here if if we have our way that is because faithful knowledge of god is not in a vacuum you you can't just learn stuff about god uh, in, in a sense that you're, you're mind alone, but we have to not neglect it either because your mind, that is your, your whole internal life goes together. Your affections and desires correspond with your knowledge and, and so too with your actions. You have to, the Christian life, uh, to put it this way, is to faithfully learn Christ, apply those things to your heart, and then practice it diligently in your life. It is really simple, but it is including all of who you are. Heart, soul, mind, strength. So, let us not be a church who idolizes comfy armchair Christianity. Couch potato Christianity. Uh, uh, I, there's probably other ways to describe it. Get to your desk. Sharpen your pencil, study hard, and look for the glory of Christ in the customs of Moses. Stephen saw it, and he said, Christ stands forth, and you don't see him. Christ stands forth as being taught from Moses, and you're not entering the kingdom of heaven because you don't look in faith. Do we see... Christ being preached in the Old Testament. I, I challenge you. That is your goal. We must. And my experience is that as I get into God's word individually, as we get into it as a family, as we work through it as a church, as you go and listen to your favorite theologians or read the good, good dead old, old dead ones in the pages of a book. One thing that you will find as you pursue an increasing knowledge of Christ to know who God is and to worship him is you will say along with the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, after Jesus had led them through 
all the law of Moses and the prophets showing and relating all the things about himself that were written about him. And they see Christ finally, their eyes are opened and they see Jesus and they go look at each other and say, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? If you look for Christ anywhere in the scriptures, and I'm urging you to your Old Testament, is you will find that God himself stands forth. He will lead you like a good shepherd into understanding these things, and your heart will burn as you see the blazing glory of Christ. It will fortify you in your life. It will lead you to worship in deeper and deeper manners such that you become a stable person, not moved about by all sorts of winds of doctrine, but you would be steadfast. Don't be satisfied with your own opinions about God, nor any man's opinions, save whatever is rooted and flowing from the living oracles of the Spirit of Christ in the Word of God, that is the Bible. Don't thrust aside like they did the law, not seeing that it shows forth Jesus. And it is also the law for us. The Ten Commandments are, should be seen for you today as Christian commandments. That's what it means to love the Lord your God. Jesus taught, I'll end on this, Jesus taught us two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with our, your heart, soul, mind, and strength summarizing the first table of the law, first four commandments. And then he said, the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The second, summarizing the fifth through the tenth commandment. These things are just the summary of the law. It applies, actually, if you go through Deuteronomy and you go through Exodus and you go through Leviticus, these things are, are really just fleshing out what it means to keep the law in different situations. And it is our job as Christians to take from all of the Old Testament law and make it the word for our living. It is that we might glorify God. What does it mean to, to, to love your neighbor as yourself? It, well, it, it means you don't kill him. It means you don't uh, take his wife for your own. You honor the marriage covenant. It is that you... Uh, you can flesh those out further. What it means is, is to, uh, to love your neighbor, to love God is, well, let me say neighbor because uh, let me just refer you to one passage. I want this to be firmly fixed in your mind since it's so squishy and amorphous. Uh, love your neighbor during the coronavirus pandemic was flipped on its head and was very much misquoted. Love your neighbor is to listen listen to me. <clears throat> but love your neighbor really means, uh, owe no one anything. This is Romans 13, 8 and following. Uh, except to love one another, for the one who loves uh, another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summarized up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong 
to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So to love your neighbor is to obey God's law with respect to your neighbor. To love your neighbor is to obey God's law with respect to your neighbor. <laughs> Joe Boot, I'll steal from him again. It's not to, uh, to love your neighbor is to not work up squishy feelings for your neighbor. It's to obey God's law with respect to him. And so what I hope you know and do is I hope you rest content in all of God's word, that you would feed on it as you would feed on Christ. You would take all of your things that you've been taught or the opinions that you have, and you would subsume it under the, the, what the word itself says, its categories, its wisdom. For in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that is the end of my sermon. At this point...